Hi, I'm Carissa Schlott. And I am Sharice Schlott. Welcome to Between Between Us, a podcast that highlights our relationship as sisters, providing a safe space to share our stories. These conversations highlight unity and connection, the through lines that connect all of us as human beings. Before we dive in, we would like to highlight that the views expressed in each episode are a product of our own research and experiences. Our opinions are not representative of any professional affiliations we may have. Episode 1. Sisterhood is to be together, feel together, heal together, and rise together. Welcome to Between Us, first episode. Here we are. Yay. Exciting. So let's begin with painting a picture of who we are right now in this in this moment, in this time. Sure. So I'm Carissa Schlott. I'm the oldest of the siblings. Sharice and I are three years apart, and then we have a younger brother, Jaden, who's three years younger than Sharice. And uh, I am a mother, leader, somebody who is naturally very curious about people and psychology and human behavior, but I also have a passion for business and entrepreneurship. Um, I myself would identify as an intrapreneur, which is sort of like an entrepreneur, but within an organization. So somebody that is trying to create change and take ownership of of a big company like it is their own. Um, So I would identify as an entrepreneur and somebody who feels like my life is coming to a point where it's, it's becoming full circle, that the pain I experienced has turned into a passion. And and now I'm trying to use that passion for a purpose. Hmm, Nice. So I'm Charisse, as she said, Three years younger than Carissa, and I'm. We're both into our well into our thirties. Yes, and I am a dog mother of two fur children named Rex and Oreo, and I call myself an experimental entrepreneur. I I don't think um, anyone ever fully masters anything, so I like to just be curious and and still be in the exploration mindset. Um, my current business is a counseling practice out of my home, and I also do a lot of uh, freelance writing, writing in general, just about thoughts, reflections, and anything that would benefit clients or the general public. And I would say my broader purpose is to really highlight um, the unity amongst our suffering Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and to really bring a space to humans, to the world that allows people to show up as they are, to be vulnerable, to be fully authentic, and to be met with non-judgment. That's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I also feel like that is the, the the through line that connects you and I, and the reason that we wanted to do this podcast is I myself feel like it's my calling to create change and to open doors and create space for people to fully be themselves and show up as themselves um, and for for there to be more equality and justice in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I think what excites me the most about the podcast is connecting with other individuals, learning their stories, but also discovering new ways of being. Mm. Um, I feel feel like that's been my role. I haven't really fit, fit well into organization on a soul level. I find it really restricting and limiting. And so, you know, a few years ago when I decided to branch on my own, it was a big risk and there's a lot of fear accompanied by it. But as I embrace this more, I realize like there's a whole world of opportunity. Mm. There is no limit because it's as far as the mind can go. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. And I think in pursuit of that change, especially social change, that we do need some kind of left brain policy activism, smart ideas, but we also need grit and passion and stories. And so for me, this podcast is that platform for us to share our stories. So getting to know us, getting to know our stories, but also being able to highlight the stories of people uh, in our community that are inspiring us. Mm -hmm, Exactly. I agree. So maybe we'd like to take you on a journey back to our childhood to, to highlight our relationship as sisters. Sure. Yeah. And if I can paint a picture of um, very literally our childhood, we, we grew up in a very small farming community in Southern Alberta. 
Um, the very first home we lived in was probably less than a thousand square feet. It was this cute little white house with green shutters and a squeaky metal gate. Um, and I remember playing outside in the backyard on the swing set, um, either with you before Jane was born or with my friend Missy, or in absence of the two of you with my imaginary friend Chrissy. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and then as we got older and moved into a, a larger home as our family grew, um, we moved into, I think it was like a, a trailer with a basement mm-hmm. underneath. Um, and then when our grandfather passed away, I was probably around 10 years old, maybe. Yeah, or, the oldest. Yeah. Because I, I don't have a lot of, like, I remember it vaguely. So I know I must have been young enough to not really have a good understanding of mm-hmm. what happened. Yeah, so somewhere between yeah. maybe the ages of, like, Eight and 12 for yep. the two of us. We Definitely. moved out uh, to the farm. So then uh, my mom and dad moved out to, our mom and dad moved out to the farm. Um, and we had the rest of our, I guess, childhood slash early teen years there. Yes. Um, just curious what your perception was of our childhood. On a side note, I just wanted to say how incredible it is you still remember your imaginary friend's name. <laughs> Probably because it rhymed with... Missy. Oh, so it was like her reincarnation. <laughs> Probably. There you go. I love it. And the other side note about the that house is it had the very first house we lived in had very dangerous stairs into the basement. Yeah. <laughs> very it's very a, dangerous. It's a marvel I'm actually still here to have this uh this life because I think when I was a toddler or a baby, I was in a one of those mobile baby contraptions <laughs> and actually went down the stairs yes. in the mobile baby contraption and Somehow was uninjured. Yeah. Sure, exactly. mother had a heart attack. Yeah. Yeah. So moving forward to life on the farm, it was very beautiful childhood in the sense that we we lived in our imagination. Um, there was a lot of outdoor play, and we were frequently in nature or with the cattle. And yeah, it was it was just quite picturesque picturesque in that way. We. Um, played outdoors we and and it was often with all three of us siblings too Mm -hmm. yeah yeah I agree and there was something kind of magical about being so close to where our food was being made um, connecting to that circle of life I can remember um, like climbing that big tree or or you know nestling into the little fort that we had built Mm -hmm. out of logs (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, and spending most of our days outside Yep, definitely. But I think there's also, you know, the sadness of being that close to our food. I remember we had family over for supper one night, and there was a joke about eating these ribs that were from three-legged calf that was my pet. And I think therein ended my eating of beef. Yeah. You were traumatized at a young age. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it's funny. I, I ended up spending uh, a period of my career working in the quasi agriculture industry, and so I have like utmost respect and admiration for how food is is made. Um, but I also understand the sacrifice that animals make mm-hmm. to feed us. Mm-hmm. Um, so, anyway, that was just yeah. an interesting anecdote. Yeah, but yeah, that was <laughs> perhaps not the best uh, best supper experience as a child. Yeah. We were very close to death, as you can see. It was it was part of our childhood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the full circle and cycle of life, you know, birth, death, and everything in between, Yeah, which I'm grateful for now as an adult. I think there, um, there was such a, a nice example, though, too, of like watching our parents and even our extended family and how hard they worked and that they, they themselves had such passion for what they were doing. Like they, they wanted to... Yeah, do the best that they could. And I think when you grow up in a small community, you also have to give so much of yourself to that community to keep it going. And so I witnessed our parents mm-hmm. quite selflessly giving back constantly. Yeah, absolutely. And there's benefits and drawbacks to that, obviously. I think, I don't know you, Carissa, but I'm pretty sure we both said this as we grew up. Where we said we'd never marry a farmer. Correct. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we just saw the amount of... Energy, effort. Sacrifice. Yes, that wasn't necessarily something we we wanted for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a hard lifestyle as well. Absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And again, utmost respect for, for those who choose it. But I think mm-hmm. um, 
I know for myself, I grew up feeling very much like an outsider, like I didn't fully belong. And yet the message that I received from our family was that what the community thinks of you matters. And what the community thinks of you matters more than what you think of yourself. Yes. And so I became acutely aware of what other people thought of me and how to please them, um, which in some respects is a, is a good thing because I, I have a good understanding of, of people and, and how they think and how, they, um, how, how humans react to each other. But at the same time, it also taught me to sacrifice myself. And so mm-hmm. I think because of that, it, as I experienced hardships throughout my teen years in particular, um, I didn't have that foundation of self-worth that was like, what I think of me matters. Uh, and that came with a lot of counseling and came later in life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and interesting that it made you acutely aware of what others think of you. Um, I think it did that to me to some extent, but for me, I think it it led me to internalize a lot more mm. because it was kind of the messaging that, like you said, um, put others above yourself. And for some reason to me, it almost created a lack of safety mm. for me to be open about feelings, thoughts, feelings, experiences. Yeah. But like you, I also felt like an outsider. I um, never felt a full sense of belonging in the community, even though we were really active in the community and we had a lot of friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it for just, sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, just by nature of the size of a small yes. community, right? Like I had the same five kids in my class growing up and there was almost like a sibling dynamic where we all knew each other extremely well. And I mean, it would be completely miserable for you not to try to find a way to get along with one another because you're together from kindergarten all the way up to grade 12. Um, yeah. And you had, how many kids were in your, in your class growing up? We yo-yoed a bit, like when in elementary, I think we had up to 20 something, but then graduation, I think was 12. Yeah. But, but similar experience, you, you're like siblings, um, you get to the point where you don't even wear clothes to school, like PJs suffice. <laughs> <laughs> Pajamas are acceptable. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's it's basically like one large family that you don't really know if you would choose for yourself either. <laughs> <laughs> Joking. <laughs> well, and I think for me, I, I always um, had a certain level of fashion sense. And so I, uh, much to my mother's chagrin... <laughs> I often wore whatever I thought was the trend or whatever was maybe even a little bit scandalous. I I recall wearing some kind of like pleather snakeskin pants to school in Mm -hmm. junior high. And in high school, the crop tops were in. So I would put on a sweater to appease mom, then get to school, take the said sweater off. I would take my winter boots to school at the beginning of winter, not wear them, just carry them to school, put them on the shelf. And then at the end of the season, I would carry them home again <laughs> so that mom thought that we were actually dressed appropriately for the winter weather. Yep, Kristen never put spent a day in her boots. I remember you had um, platform or high-heeled pleather shoes, and I remember <laughs> them because they made this atrocious squeaking sound <laughs> in the snow. And so every so time bad. she walked, it would squeak. Like, but it was like, like kind of like you know the the annoyingness of nails on a chalkboard. It was, yeah. But I remember you wore those relentlessly, oh, and yeah, so bad. Yeah. So like you said, we had a very idealistic childhood mm-hmm. together, and I think like I have lots of fond memories of our sisterhood during that time. And then as we're getting into the pleather pants era, um, <laughs> I noticed for my own self uh, as I entered my teenage years and hit puberty that the outworld world started reflecting back to me that my value was in my appearance. So comments about my talents or abilities started to shift to what a beautiful young woman I was becoming. And so I feel like I was, I started to kind of distance myself or, or pull away, not just from you as my sister, but from everybody. And I was becoming more obsessed with how I looked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and to clarify, this would happen no matter where we went, like we'd go into Lethbridge, we could be in a grocery store and there'd be some teen teenagers in there that would be catcalling and we'd be shopping in the mall and people would ask her if she was Britney Spears. So there was an enormous amount of attention um, for you related to your parents. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was almost like we, like we couldn't go anywhere 
where you were unnoticed. Mm-hmm. Hmm. That's interesting from somebody outside of myself. I know there wasn't a reflective surface that I didn't um, check myself out in. Yes. <laughs> but what I also know is, uh, again, my my sense of self-worth was shifting only to that. And so I think it um, I started to lose myself a little bit in that as well. Mm-hmm. How did you feel during that time? Uh, I think that was probably where the onset of my... I, I think I always had a pretty um, negative or dark perception of myself, which I didn't ever express. I mostly internalized. And I, but I think around that time, like I would have just been going through puberty. I was in my really beautiful puffy puberty stage <laughs> and I had a perm, perm bangs that were back combed, like, yeah. Shaped like a triangle. Yeah. Hadn't quite got braces. So it was a really, um, rough stage for me. And, and then because it was like, the contrast of of you being stepping into your femininity and being so noticed, I felt kind of like the ugly sister. So I really withdrew more into myself. And I even remember this happening, like changes in my posture where I would be like Mm. curled into myself. It was almost like that's where I started to want to shrink and disappear in the sense that I couldn't live up to that or I would never be that. Mm -hmm. Gosh. Yeah. Makes me sad thinking back. Um, yeah, and also so thankful that our sisterhood is where it is at today mm-hmm. because it's taken, uh, I guess, two very independent journeys of self-healing, self-growth, and also the desire to constantly want to be better and to work on our relationship. And I'm so thankful for where we are today. And I have so much love and admiration for who you are mm-hmm. in your wisdom, in your beauty, both outwardly and inwardly, mm. your soul, you're, you're just the most incredible light in this world. And so I'm so thankful that this platform is giving you a chance to shine. Mm, thank you. That makes me tear up a bit too. Yeah, it's it's really beautiful that, you know, our, our relationship as sisters has, you know, evolved mm-hmm. continually throughout our, our upbringing and into now. And it's drifted apart, it's come together. So hopefully we can, you know, delve into that a bit. Yeah. And and it's also interesting, like our struggles manifested in a similar way, but the reasons behind them were very different. Yes. Around the onset of like teenagehood. Yeah. Yes. So as I was blossoming into this Britney Spears-esque teenager, (laughs) I, like I said, I was, I was kind of losing myself a bit. And I think in looking for some sense of control and also wanting somebody to want me, I ended up in a relationship with somebody who was emotionally abusive and at the end physically abusive. And during that time, and just for context, I would have been in grade nine and the boy I was dating was in grade 12. So he was four, almost four years older than me, um, three years older than me. And during that time, I remember him making a comment about somebody else in our school who I would have compared my body or, or, or physical appearance to, and he made a comment about them being fat. And I thought to myself, if he thinks that of them, then what must he think of me? And that was, I mean, it was one very small catalyst. There was a lot of things behind that, but it also started my journey into bulimia and anorexia, where I was looking for some sense of control to be able to manipulate my appearance and also so that I had something for myself that I could yeah, that I could control. Mm-hmm. And and the interesting thing is you kept that as hidden as possible. Like yours never really fully came out. Yes. And so me being the age I was and, and knowing things that were like, not knowing necessarily what was happening, but knowing there was struggle taking place. Um, yeah, but you know, a lot of people say like they, they learned from someone. And in my case, I went into severe anorexia and then later bulimia as well. But it was so different from the route that you took, right? Mm-hmm. And and it wasn't like I learned any skills from you or anything because right. yours was so hidden. Yes. And um, mine mine got to the point where it was so blatantly obvious that, you know, hospitalization was needed. Like I didn't yeah. really have a choice anymore. And mine was less about control. It was more about um like self-harm, wanting to wanting to die, wanting to disappear. And then there was also a component of rebelliousness in that it was my only way Mm -hmm. to push against 
the expectations of the community or the expectations of my parents because I had really ingrained being this like perfectionistic, like the good girl that follows rules, that doesn't get into trouble, that doesn't make noise. Um, And so it was kind of my way of rebelling because I couldn't outwardly rebel. Yeah. You were also stuck in this environment and you had to find a way to cope. Yeah. And so, yeah, like I said, ours both manifested in similar ways. Reasonings Mm -hmm. were different and even the trajectory that took us on was different. Yeah. Yeah. So I, like Sheree said, I, I largely hid mine mm-hmm. from everybody, or I, I liked, I think I was also a bit of an ego thing of like, <laughs> nobody will know. I'm going to put on this perfect facade still from the outside. Nobody will know what's actually going on on the inside. Um, but then when I left home to go to university, I think I just shifted it from an eating disorder into compulsive drinking. Um, and I was going through definitely a very like, spontaneous free phase of my life where I didn't have, there wasn't the the rules, the daily rules of you have to be home by this time, or you have to get this certain grade, or you need to show up for this class at this time. I was experimenting with what all of that meant. Um, And so I think with the freedom, I was able to kind of pull myself a bit out of the eating disorder. And then I'm so thankful. Obviously, I was also able to get out of the abusive relationship that I was in. And I met my now husband, Steve, Mm -hmm. at that phase of my life. And so I think like he was, in a lot of ways, an angel. Like I I remember meeting him. He was a bartender. um, But when I met him, I remember thinking, this is my person. This is the person that is meant to be in my life. It was like this sense of calm confidence. Like I have never experienced meeting anybody else before. So I'm very grateful that I met him at that fragile moment because had I met somebody similar and that pattern repeated itself again, I think I would be in a very different position today. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think at that time too, um, it seemed to me from the outside that you made real friendships as well. Yes. Mm -hmm. Like female friendships that like I think emulated or mimicked that sense of like spontaneity and freedom. Yeah, definitely. I'm, and I'm very grateful for that. And so at that same time, I'm moving out. You're now falling into your own eating disorder. Mm-hmm. And again, from the outside, I'm witnessing somebody literally killing herself. Like mm-hmm. I, I saw you getting sicker and sicker and didn't know how to help, how to, yeah, how to be and then I think because I had also hidden my own eating disorder, there was also this this fear around, <laughs> like, how do I help her when I don't know even know how I can help myself right now? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, then mm-hmm. then followed, like you said, a, a few years of treatment. and Yeah. And I didn't want to be helped, just as a side note. No part of me wanted to give that up. I felt like... It was completely my own. I didn't have to share it with anyone. Um, in, a, in a strange sense, it's almost like it became my best friend. Mm. Yeah. Did you feel like, were you ever scared by it? Like, did you feel like you might die? Like, did No. It... Interesting. No. I, I had full confidence that it was my path. Like, and, and even if I did die, I had like, didn't care. I, yeah. it, was, it was like, no, I, I would rather die than to give this up. Wow. Yeah. And so that's, where, like I said, started with outpatient treatment, um, hospitalizations for a week or two at a time, being on bed rest, um, and then evolved into uh, day treatment in Calgary, which was not very successful for me because I was too ill to be in any sort of um, program where it needed like self-motivation. Right. And then that eventually evolved into inpatient treatment in Edmonton. And I did that dance. Edmonton was definitely beneficial for me because it was the level of care that I needed. Mm -hmm. And so I would be there for at least three months every time. And then I'd come back to life and um, kind of retreat back into the eating disorder, then go back into treatment. And I think I did that at least three or four times before I decided to relocate in Edmonton near the program. So I could have outpatient support following the inpatient treatment. Right. And mm-hmm. during that that phase of treatment, like I think this is probably the most crucial turning point in our family's dynamics mm-hmm. is the counselors insisted on family counseling as mm-hmm. well. Um, and I think that was so helpful because, I mean, your life was on the line 
And it caused all of us to take a look at the some of the harmful patterns and messages that our, our family dynamics had created. And it also gave me permission to get help for myself. Mm. So I'm so thankful for, yeah, for that mm. catalyst in our family dynamics. Yeah. And I actually didn't know that about you. I know, you know, with the parents, it really incorporated them and really caused them to reflect on just even parenting and the myriad of things. But I didn't know that for you, it was kind of the pivotal moment as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think too, like now being a mother myself, like every parent, I like I believe this in the depths of my bones, every parent does the best that they can with mm -hmm. what they have, right? Like I, our parents did the best that they could with what they knew. Yes, absolutely. And I'm trying obviously to do the best that I can with my boys, recognizing that there's going to be things that Steve and I do that are not going to be helpful for them. <laughs> They're going to have their own things to to navigate in this world. And everybody has something. Everybody goes through pain. Everybody has to learn how to cope. But my hope is that everybody, um, yeah, everybody finds peace in that and finds healing from that somehow mm -hmm. on their own time in their own way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, not that I believe everything happens for a reason, because we choose how we mm -hmm. view the circumstances of our life. But for me, I wouldn't change how how my life went, even though there was immense struggle. I it's formed who I am today. It completely shifted um, my life trajectory. It mm -hmm. took me out of the situation I didn't want to be in anymore, um, and that was a blessing. And even moving mm -hmm. to Edmonton was the first time where I felt like I was starting with no strings attached. I could create the kind of person I wanted to be. I could. Um, choose what I was doing every day without any supervision. Mm. Um, and, and going from the contrast of being an inpatient in a psychiatric institution to going to, you know, living on your own, you feel like the world is your oyster because you you go from lack of freedom to complete freedom. And that is an amazing feeling, sometimes overwhelming. Yes. But for me, that was... Euphoria. Yeah. That was the journey to rediscovering myself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so while you're doing that, I'm kind of now finding the same life lessons or repeating themselves uh, again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I'm now in the first first year of my professional career and I find myself working for a male manager who is, I would say, also emotionally abusive, um, but certainly not an effective leader. I recall one day I was having a lot of stomach issues and feeling really tired. I didn't know what was going on, um, but I was definitely struggling just to make it to work on time. And I remember crying in front of him one day and he cocked his head to the side and said, you're not as tough as you think you are. And so I think I started internalizing all of these messages about, about not using my voice and about kindness or vulnerability being weakness, which they are not. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, again, I tried to leave that relationship by moving into a different department. Um, but the pattern kind of repeated itself again. And so at that point in my life, I questioned, like, what is this here to teach me? What am I missing? Like, wh <laughs> why am I finding myself in this power dynamic? And what do I, who do I want to be? And what do I do with this? Mm -hmm. um, and for me, it meant leaving that company and going to, to work in a different um, environment that I felt was a better fit for me personally. But um, but I, yes. I want to highlight that that came with significant struggle as well, because that was the time you were, you know, the onset of your chronic illness, Crohn's disease. Yes. And like, I think that for me, visibly was one of the lowest lows in your life, mm -hmm. visibly. Um, yes. And I think the only way as humans that I think we can make profound changes or shifts in our life is through struggle. Hmm. Yeah. And I think that that wouldn't have happened. Like it, when things are going well, we don't need to make change. We're happy and content with with the way things right. are are coming to fruition. But yeah, yes. I agree. Yeah, hundred mm percent. -hmm. So you're right. I mean, as a symptom of that environment, and also my own predisposition to Crohn's disease. Um, our grandmother on our mother's side had Crohn's disease. Our father has Crohn's disease, mm -hmm. and it is genetic, although there's also a, a, an environmental component that they don't fully understand. Southern Alberta, as an example, has a quite high prevalence of autoimmune illnesses. So I was diagnosed with Crohn's at 25 years old. I was very sick. 
I then went on a, I felt like a guinea pig basically of different medications. I was put on prednisone Mm -hmm. and gained over 100 pounds overnight, (laughs) pretty much. Um, I was struggling with anxiety and depression and kind of fell into the chronic illness cycle of being anxious about getting sick, then getting sick, then being depressed about being sick. And that cycle repeated itself for almost two years um, to the point where I was living and working from home. um, In your marshmallow pajamas. In my big, fluffy (laughs) Winnie the Pooh marshmallow pajamas um, that our grandmother gave us when we were, I don't know how old, Mm -hmm. nine or ten. I still have them. I still love them. Um, But yeah, I I went weeks without showering. Um, Steve became my caregiver instead of my partner. Um, And there was a rough couple of years where I basically hit like a dark point that I like, I was, I, I didn't ever actively plan suicide, but I definitely wanted death. Like I was longing for the pain and suffering to end. Like I, I just hated myself so much and I was so, so sick and in so much pain. I just wanted it to end. Mm -hmm. Um, But you're right. That was also the turning point. That was also the sort of rock bottom, so to speak, because I realized at that moment, well, this is this is as bad as it can get, basically. So <laughs> what do I want to do with it from here? Like, I think I got so sick of hating myself mm-hmm. that I decided there's got to be a better way to live. Maybe, maybe, just maybe I should try loving myself. Mm. Yeah, that's really beautiful. And it's interesting because that was probably the time in our lives that we were the most distant from one another. Like right. physically we were because we were in different cities. But also I feel like I was on a certain path, like really the freedom, the finding myself, like having again, first solid friendships. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you were going through that struggle and you were really withdrawn then too. So yeah. I would say that was probably our least connected period. Yeah, I think so period. too. I mm-hmm. think so too. And so I think though, through that darkness that we both experienced, that's also sort of how we found each other again, like how we Mm -hmm. found our way back to our sisterhood. Mm -hmm. Um, Family dynamics can be complicated and sisterhood isn't always easy, but on our own independent journeys, after we struggled, we found ourselves in the darkness. And then there was a time that I was afraid I was going to lose you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Perhaps there was a time you were afraid you might lose me or I might lose myself. Um, So I'm grateful for the darkness that reunited us. And I'm grateful that we each summon the strength to light a single match when Mm -hmm. all hope seemed lost. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think I didn't ever think or worry I was going to lose you. I think my concern would have been, um, will we ever come together again? Because because we were leading such different lives. And because I was on almost like a hippie journey and um, completely detaching from image. And like I said, that was never my source of identity through Mm -hmm. my image. And I think that's when you were still jostling and and trying to figure out, am I my image? And so I wondered if we were ever going to come together in some common ground. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that um, that was, I guess, the silver lining for me of the Crohn's disease is because I I almost had to to lose my sense of my, my self-image. Like when I gained 100 pounds and people didn't even recognize me, like I'd say hello to somebody in a grocery store and they wouldn't even like look look at me or respond to me and not not out of anything not out of rudeness, but they they literally didn't recognize me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so with that, I think I had I I almost had to lose that or shed that as a part of my identity. But I'm so thankful because it connected to me to to my true sense sense of self worth, like mm-hmm. where my worth actually comes from, mm-hmm. and that it's so much deeper than anything that any of us have on the outside. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. And actually, going back to the um self-love component Mm -hmm. that's something that I don't know like everything is always on a spectrum but I don't know for me personally if I'll ever reach that full embracement of self-love like I think there's you know I often incorporate the eastern side and the eastern philosophy so for me it's kind of like self-detachment so I kind of view it as as it just almost like a complacency Yeah, I I can't get to that place where I'm like, I love myself. But for me, it's kind of like, it's enough. Hmm. And and that's what I have to be okay with. Um, I think also, to me, to be like, 
self-love seems like an end of a spectrum. And for me, that's a perfectionistic goal that I can never achieve. Uh, And that's a trap for me sometimes. So, And it kind of does the opposite of what it might do for others where it might uplift them. But for me, it's like, because that seems unattainable, then it turns into self-critique. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Really interesting. That's cool. Yeah. And hopefully our conversation highlights... Just even though we're, you know, we were raised the same way, you know, we were raised by two parents, the differences in our perspectives are even just how we operate in the world. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, even just in terms of like what we identify with um, external from ourselves, like I went to find my way through the darkness, I found like I identified with the light. Mm -hmm. So like I I cling to optimism and hope and light and mm-hmm. like positive psychology yes. <laughs> to some extent. And I know you're much the opposite. Yes. That that for me is almost triggering when I'm in um like a wound place. Mm. So for me, I have to go into the depths, like through the darkness, almost to die unto myself. <laughs> yeah. I have to go through that physical death. I have to yeah. Because the more I reach for the light, the more I, I feel like I'm suffering or I'm not honoring um, my true experience. And all the parts of yourself, which yeah. for all of us include yeah. lightness and darkness. Yes. And I know this helped me when I was in university, but I was taking a course on, I think it was like mental illness in general. But they said that people with depression often see the world more realistically Mm. and that doesn't always serve us well but I would say that I I see things very big picture and so sometimes I can get easily disenfranchised or disheartened by the state of the world or yeah so I see things on a broader scale but sometimes that really fuels into my depressive state yeah Mm -hmm. it makes sense yeah (laughs) I mean if 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 we're all honest and objective and take a step back like the world, the world can be a depressing place. Yeah. Like, I mean, even if you consider all of the pain and suffering that's happened in this past year with COVID, like yeah. I know for myself, even I felt like, and this is all goes back to my sense of out of control, things being out of control and happening from left field when I can't see them coming. But it almost like put me back into some old wounds, some old patterns, and it it forced me to look at the world a bit different. And then you you see all of the social issues, the injustices that are happening in Canada, mm-hmm. across the border, across the world. Yeah. Um, and how to not, like, how to see it so that you know it's there, but not let all of that pain come in. Yeah. Uh, that was, yeah, that was my challenge of 2020. Yeah. And for me, um, that's where I have to fully go into the pain. Like, even if it means that it's going to be debilitating in that moment, mm-hmm. um, I have to feel it because if I don't, I split off from myself. And then that in the future causes more harm. So for me, it's like I have to allow that tsunami and just fully be in it, fully be in the ride. And and then once I'm through that, that's where I can see parts of the light again. Mm. But yes, like but I you said. you have to let the yes, tsunami come yes, first and hit yeah. you and then you can. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So interesting. Yeah. And so why do this podcast? Hmm. Yeah. So first of all, I signed up for this. <laughs> Off your own free will. Yes. Um, to have a fun slash creative venture with you as my sister. And like I said, I think our relationship is the strongest it's been. And mm-hmm. it has been like this for quite a few years. And so it was exciting to be involved with you in something, yeah, to spend more time together, to share in a pursuit. Yeah, I agree. Um, Something that I we get to to do with you on a biweekly or monthly basis um, where we would have time together to have deep, meaningful conversations, not just with each other, but, but with other people who we find interesting or who we feel like have an important message or story to tell. Um. I also like this idea of entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs who are trying to create positive change in the world and, and giving them a platform um, to shine a light on the important work that they're doing. Um, that was something else that I, yeah, that I just felt was missing. And I think there's something really interesting and unique about about a sister, a sisterhood and a sister dynamic that creates a safe place for that to happen. Mm-hmm. Beautiful, and. For me, the, there's also a little bit of selfish motivation in that, you know, there's a lot of just uncertainty and unknown in 
me being an experimental entrepreneur. And so I'm really fascinated by other people who are almost challenging the status quo or existing in ways that are non-traditional. And for me, I would love to be able to connect with others and to learn like, how, how did you get here? Why didn't it work for you? Um, Because I know I have really strong views and opinions of that as well. Yeah, really Mm -hmm. smart. And I think there's something about, about sharing our stories that innately connects us all as human beings. And so I hope that somebody listening feels like they can see themselves in us or in one of our guests in their stories or experiences. Mm-hmm. And then it creates a, a ripple effect for positive change. Yes, I agree. Yeah. And I, I'm also excited for the opportunities yet to come. Um, it excites me to know that we can't possibly predict the outcome. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So let's dive into our fast five questions. All right. Sharice, fill in the blank. Sisterhood is? I would say soulful companionship. What about you, Carissa? I love it. I would say sisterhood is sacred and love. Mm -hmm. All right. What is your favorite drink at Starbucks? Oh, this is so easy for me. (laughs) Okay. This is one of my side obsessions. Um, My favorite is still matcha latte, matcha green tea latte, for those who might not know, with any sort of milk alternative aside from the oat milk with the matcha. For me, that tastes like mushroom soup. I'm not sure why. (laughs) So, yes. So not oat milk, but but like soy milk, coconut milk. But it's fine. The oat milk is fine in any other drink, but with the matcha for some reason, it's a weird reaction. Yeah. (laughs) And what about you? Good to know. I like, uh, I agree. I also like the matcha green tea latte with soy. I have not tried the oat milk, so I cannot confirm or deny the mushroom soup taste. Um, but I feel like my drinks at Starbucks kind of match my personality. It'd be very multifaceted. Like some days I like a soy mocha frappuccino, which also happens to be my husband and my kid's favorite drink. Um, some days I like a soy latte. It just depends on the day. But Yeah, and the mood. And the mood. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, what is something that you've failed at? Oh, life? <laughs> no. Um, eating? <laughs> uh, I would say even just existing, like functioning in the status quo way, like, you know, going to a job every single day from nine to like the structure of that. I just really struggle in that environment to stay physically, spiritually, emotionally well. So I would say that's probably my most profound struggle. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, The first thing I can remember feeling at was swimming in pursuit of uh, becoming a lifeguard. There was a time swim when I think I had to do 24 laps of the university pool in 14 minutes or something like that. Uh, I'm a decent swimmer, but I am not a fast swimmer. <laughs> so that was the first thing that I uh, can recall failing at. And it was so humbling. Like it was one of the few things that I couldn't just put my mind to, to mm-hmm. get my body to do. Like I remember throwing up at the side of the pool. <laughs> anyway, that was a terrible failure. Um, what else have I failed at? I failed a million times at being a mom, like saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing, not being present. Daily, daily, I reflect on how I'm feeling as mom. Mm-hmm. Um, as a side else? note, this the the failure of this swimming is actually quite profound because Krista has this way of like executing things really flawlessly, and she's really natural. I don't know. I don't think there was anything she really like struggled with, like even academically. So, you know, that was probably the first <laughs> thing was. that was a, like difficult for her, and so yeah. Yeah, just want to point that out. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you, sis. Yeah. yeah, it's um, it's both a gift and a curse that I have this innate ability to execute things really well, and I make it look easy, mm-hmm. even though it's not been like I have this. So people don't often see the amount of work, pain, or struggle that I go through because I somehow like make it seem like I'm whipping it all together and putting a bow on it yeah. quite effortlessly, yeah. and that's not the case. <laughs> Wraps it up in a beautifully decorated box, and and for me, it's been the opposite. That I just, I have to like fail immensely. Like I, I learn through experiencing. So it's, it's big struggles. And then eventually I learn. Yeah. But you're also somebody who is like, you're the, literally the smartest person that I know. You are extremely gifted academically, 
physically with like sports and going to the gym and all of that. Like I know Mm. even in your treatment program, some of the psychologists had said like you could have been an Olympic athlete Mm -hmm. if you wanted to be like you had the drive (laughs) to do whatever you wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah. I just needed less perfectionism. Yeah. Yeah. That's what they said my my curse was. And if you could turn the perfectionism down. Yeah. And yes, I agree. And who do you admire the most? Hmm. So I, we've talked about this in the past, and I would just say um, this would have to kind of embody for me just a way of living, how they're showing up to the world. And this might seem strange, but it's uh, Russell Brand. I love him. Yeah. He's so unconventional, and he says things that are controversial, but he, he fully is just being him. He's a, a trickster. Mm. He has somehow merged um, his business, like finances, with his work in life. And he's also brought in a spiritual component to that or a healing component. And so in all of those aspects, I just love how everything has come together. And then that's he's just being himself and living. And, and for me, that is the ideal life. Cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, aside from my own personal heroes, which include Oprah, mm-hmm. who is incredible, um, Ellen, who was my daily laughter at the darkest phases of my life, um, my Auntie Deb, who was my mentor growing up. I think there was something about the fact that she had a professional career and lived in a city. Mm-hmm. It, it was like this dreamy life for me of something outside of our very small town living. Um, mm-hmm. And so... And she was just this very independent, still is a very yeah. independent, strong. Um, I use the word feminist, but what I really mean is she is the most kind person, and she believes in equality for all. Mm-hmm. And so, the three of them, I would say, are people that I admire. But in a broader sense, I admire people who have been through something, who are resilient, but who get up and they try again, and they look at themselves in the mirror to ask the question. What is this here to teach me? Mm-hmm. So those are the types of friends that I that I look for are, are people who, yeah, who have some sense of um, authenticity and resiliency. Mm-hmm. And just to go back to Auntie Deb too, it was so refreshing because she made it part of her mission to expose us to culture, to differences. Yes. And for that, I am so, so grateful. And Chris's husband, he's um, half Chinese. He was so impressed when he met her and our family because we could all use chopsticks. <laughs> it's true. And we're from I, like in the sticks rural, right? So, yeah. That's a great point. I also should credit Auntie Deb with the fact that I'm married to Steve Wong, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> who took me to a sushi restaurant on our first date and I knew what to order and how to use chopsticks. So, yeah, it's a good point. Mm-hmm. And what is your favorite song? And since our mother invested in singing lessons for us when we were children, perhaps you could sing the title. Okay, you have to go first on this one. <laughs> okay. I don't think I can narrow it down to just one. Um, the first is my soul music. Whenever I need to kind of come back to grounding myself, taking a deep breath, I listen to India Ari. So my favorite song is I am light, I am light. That's one of them. Mm-hmm. And the second is when I need to channel my inner warrior to use courage and step into my voice. Um, I listen to Rachel Platten's, This is my fight song. Take back my life song. Prove I'm all right song. Nice. Yeah. Oh, no, I have to sing. Okay. <laughs> this one is hard for me because I um, my tastes and interests change with time, situation. And so I was trying to think back to more childhood, like songs I really clung to. Um, and I think the first one that I actually thought of was the Mulan Reflections. Yes. Um, I don't know if I'll sing the, the chorus, but I'll just sing the very beginning. Sure. It starts. Who is that girl I see staring straight back at me? So good. That one. And then um, probably like teenagehood, just kind of before you're really aware of struggle, Mm -hmm. would have been uh, Strawberry Wine. 
that strawberry wine. Seventeen, the hot July moon saw everything. The first taste of love, love bittersweet. There we go. So good. Yeah. Our mother is going to be so pleased, by the way. It's yeah. like her favorite thing when we sing. Yeah. So I'm sorry for everybody else listening, yeah. but mom is happy right Ignore, now. Ignore um, pitch slash any, I don't know, any tone differences or just ignore. <laughs> okay. Last question. What is your dream or vision for the world? I feel like I did actually say this in the podcast, which I would say is to create safe spaces for healing and for people to be able to show up in authenticity and vulnerability. And then of lastly would be the equality. Like if we could eradicate poverty, there are so many upstream benefits um, like on all levels, financial, uh, you know, physical, mental, on every single level. So I think it would it would be that as well. Nice, and I would agree. Like I think most of my pain came from not knowing who I was and being afraid to step into the light of that or the power of that. And so my hope for the world is that every every human being can heal themselves and learn to, if not fully love, accept themselves. Um, and to be able to show up as authentically themselves. Whenever I get overwhelmed about all of the things in the world that are going wrong and thinking like, oh gosh, how can I help all of these people? How can I cure this? Um, <laughs> I always just remind myself, um, it's kind of the same philosophy I have in parenting, which is to heal the world, heal ourselves. Like our children will become who we are and so be who we want them to be. Like if we all went home and took care of ourselves, the world would be a better place. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's beautiful. All right. Yeah. First episode down. Our first guest uh, will be a mystery guest. Yes. Somebody off offering uh, their story as a pseudonym name. Yes. For uh, protective purposes for their physical safety. Oh, it's yes. going to be so good. Yes. So thank you for listening. I hope you tune in for the second episode. Yes. And we thank you for your time. As we say, that's the most valuable asset in, in, I don't know, in everything. And so, yes, we appreciate you tuning in, you taking the time to listen to us. Yes, thank you. Goodbye. Tween us. Hi, my name is Bodie. I hope you stay safe. Hi, my name is Gabe. I hope you have a great day. Audio production by Joel Vargasi at Lewis Studios.